community radio. It's about real people. Not sound bites. Not more talking heads. Not on this show. Interchange is a community access media forum fostering unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Conversations that challenge the ways we perceive the world around us. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Doug Storm, and with me tonight is co-host Trish Curley. Glad to be here, Doug. As of today, in the United States, 19 states and the District of Columbia have legalized marriage for lesbian and gay couples. Since the overturning of the Defense of Marriage Act, otherwise known as DOMA or Windsor versus the United States, in June 2013, there have been dozens of victories for the freedom to marry, with many of those rulings on hold pending appeal. In Indiana, same-sex couples were getting married for three days in June when the ban on marriage was overturned until the state was granted a stay of that decision. Then, one week ago today, on August 26th, cases from Indiana and Wisconsin were presented to a panel of three federal judges with the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. It's uncertain when a ruling by that panel will be announced, but many legal experts expect the U.S. Supreme Court will settle the issue of marriage equality once and for all in the coming session. And if you look at the coverage through the eyes of the mainstream media, the impression you'll likely get is that the gay community is of one mind, universally and unquestionably committed to marriage. Tonight we'll explore some of the nuances, complexities, and limitations of marriage for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community, the LGBT community, from a decidedly left of center, some might even say radical, political and cultural perspective. However, this is not an anti-marriage or anti-marriage equality show. It is, however, our attempt to underscore that marriage may not be an easy decision for all same-gender couples. Our guests tonight will share their views, critique, and to some extent, ambivalence on the subject of legally recognized marriage for LGBT people. Byron Craig holds two degrees from Indiana University, a master's degree in African-American and African diaspora studies, and a PhD in communications and culture. His research explores the intersections of race, gender, and class, and he is a faculty lecturer with the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Colin Johnson is associate professor of gender studies an adjunct associate professor of American Studies, History, and Human Biology at Indiana University in Bloomington, where he teaches courses on LGBT studies and the history of gender and sexuality in the United States. We will also bring into this conversation the voices of some lesbian and gay activists from around the country through audio clips. Colin Johnson, I'd like to start with you because I think it's important to do some historical context setting for this conversation. This past June was the 
45th anniversary of what most people consider the beginning of the modern gay rights movement, the Stonewall Riots. What happened that weekend in June 1969 in the West Village of New York City, and why did it happen? Um, So the important points to, I think, bear in mind about the Stonewall Riot um, are, so basically, um, on uh, in in late June um, of 1969, um, things were sort of happening as they often happened at bars in Greenwich Village, most notably the Stonewall Inn. Um, and on the morning of June 28th, um, very early on in the morning, um, the Stonewall Inn was raided by New York police, um, which was not an uncommon thing uh, during this period. Um, well, policing was sort of uh, uneven in um, uh, New York during this period. It wasn't uncommon for police to occasionally go in and decide to rough up um, patrons in gay and lesbian bars. Um, and so what was different about that particular evening is that uh, the patrons of the Stonewall Inn, um, who were familiar with this kind of behavior, uh, actually decided to fight back that evening. Um, and so uh, unlike previous raids, um, they turned around and started hurling bottles and other things at <laughs> the bar at the police officers um, and ultimately drove them back out into the street. And they held uh, the Stonewall for a number of hours. Um, and that in and of itself was quite a remarkable event in the history of, of gay and lesbian life in the United States. It was remarkable not only because of the sort of resistance, but it was also remarkable because the patrons of the Stonewall Inn represented a broad section of New York's queer underground. Um, uh, I think we tend to think of them as kind of gay men and lesbians in the way that we understand today, and certainly some of them were, but, um, uh, uh, but it was a much broader coalition of um, people of color, uh, drag queens, for example, um, hurling, and in fact, there are a lot of sort of um, pictures of people hurling, you know, high-heeled shoes at police officers. Um, and so that in and of itself was a sort of important event. Um, but it was also important because it served as a catalyst for the formation um, of what would eventually come to be known as the Gay Liberation Movement uh, and the formation of an organization called the Gay Liberation Front, which was um, uh, sort of formed in response to um, police harassment um, and was formed for the purpose of trying to lay out a kind of radical revolutionary agenda uh, on behalf of, of gay men and lesbians at the time. Um, can you tell me uh, briefly what you thought was uh, or what you think the radical and revolutionary agenda was at the time? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I will say, I think talking about anything historically always requires a bit of caution because it's very easy to generalize, you know, to an entire population of people and, and sort of imagine that they had a kind of uniform opinion or set of thoughts about, and that I think was not the case. Um, but certainly uh, some of, from our perspective, some of the Gay Liberation Front's demands would be seen as quite radical. They They ranged from um, and built off of other movements that were sort of in the air at the time, um, radical critiques of gender inequality, certainly. Um, in, in many cases, radical critiques of, um, of racism prevalent um, uh, within New York and other parts of the country, and, and most kind of relevant for the purposes of the show, in, so, in many instances, radical critiques of the institution of marriage, among other things, as being a sort of site of heterosexual privilege. Um, and in many ways, a sort of representation of um, 
of the society that had sort of turned its back on them um, and that was actually responsible for persecuting them. Um, there were some people uh, who were involved with the Gay Liberation Front very early on who actually made demands um, to be allowed to marry because they wanted access to all the privileges that they saw heterosexuals enjoying um, as well. But even that was a sort of um, a very critical uh, barb in some regard at what they saw as sort of heterosexual supremacy. Great, thanks. Uh, let's play a clip now um, by Urvashi Vad, who has been a gay and social justice activist and movement leader for 30 years. Vad is the director of the Engaging Tradition Project at the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia Law School. This is from 2010. I think we've progressed from building a politics centered in our own dreams and experiences of otherness, of outsiderness in the 70s and 80s to a politics that's all about our desire for sameness and our longing to belong in the 90s and in the present decade. The focus of our movement changed from making ourselves comfortable with the non-traditional notions of sexuality and gender, of power and equality, of justice and freedom that we embodied to making 51% majorities comfortable with us we began to try to fit into a heterosexist world instead of committing to expanding justice and freedom for all. We endorsed D'Amato and other choice zealots. Instead of showing the straight world how we could help it heal itself from the damage of sexual abuse, lies, sexual shame, deadening roles, we insist to the straight world that we are no different from it in any way that no fundamental change will be required if we are allowed into existing structures of family, economy, and governance. The Gay Liberation Front and Urvashi Vad seem to express some values in common. Um, that vision was not embraced by the mainstream LGBT community in 1969, nor is it considered a mainstream vision of the gay community today, but those ideals are often expressed by those on the, on the left of the political spectrum. So, Byron Craig, to what extent have the notions of, of liberation of tran and transformation, of creating something new and better, defined the gay community in the 45 years since Stonewall? Well, <coughs> excuse me. And, uh, Colin, thank you for that, the information on Stonewall. I think that's really helpful for the conversation. You know, when I listen to that, that, that comment, it makes me think about um, some of my own problems with thinking about uh, gay marriage and that is on such a pedestal as this 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 one thing um, towards the liberation politics and I, I think I have a problem with it and I, I, I think what happens is her the comments remind me of James Baldwin and race when he talks about this um, trying to be what white people are Right, and he saw that as very problematic. Instead of making people understand that as a black person, you have this value, you add something to this American way of life that people need to be striving for instead of us trying to strive for what white America is. And I think the same thing happens for me with with um, with gay liberation struggles, um, with reaching for this one thing that I equate to this this kind of heterosexual normalcy, that I think because I'm because I was in Atlanta 
in the 1980s, and it was this expression, especially in the black gay community, this expression of freedom and being different. Um, and knowing that we never could probably um, reach the same levels as our white brothers and sisters because it was a notion of poverty, right? There was this kind of economic disparity that existed within the black gay community. We never really thought about things like marriage so much uh, because that seems so far reaching. For us, it was this day-to-day struggle of just existing. You know, I can't tell you how many people that I knew in Atlanta who were, who were killed because they were out on the streets trying to survive, right? And for me, I guess that's what has been ingrained as a struggle for me. And so maybe I take it past the point of liberation and to this point of struggle because that's kind of, I always equate the, for me, the gay rights movement, uh, a liberation theology as, or liberation politics as one where is this daily existence, this survival, right? Um, so I, I really see and, and I, I'm all for if someone can get married and have the same, you know, equal rights and all that and, and, and get that, that's fine. But I think for me, I'd like to see that liberation struggle be placed in some larger context, some larger ideals that I think distill this disparity with even within the gay community, right? Uh, there's not this equality, right? We had a lot of people um, in, in Atlanta, for, existence, for, ex- for example, who moved out to the suburbs, uh, and those were typically white, the white gay population. So what you had left in the inner city were black gay people who couldn't get the same type of treatment for HIV and AIDS, for instance, right? Because no one wanted those community centers built in the city, right? And so there was that struggle. And so for me, I guess my my growth has been in understanding that struggle is one where there's this inequality um, and mistreatment of people. And I think by coalition coalition building, with other groups that are disenfranchised or marginalized. I think that's what liberation means more so. And again, keeping in mind that I'm not against uh, passing of gay marriage. I think the word that you use in the introduction, ambivalent, I'm a little ambivalent about it at this point because I'm afraid of this individualism um, and, and more about a collective struggle uh, to, to make sure everyone's treated equally from health to uh, incarceration, right? Um, who's getting picked on in the streets more because really minorities who are gay are out in the streets, right? You know, we're in an uproar about this killing of Michael Brown, but every day there are young black gay people, and not just young black gay people, but who are being killed, right? Who are being harassed by the police. And we don't talk about that in, in the gay community so much anymore. Colin Johnson, let me let me ask you, to, I, I, one of the things that, you, you, you said a lot of things just now, Byron Craig, and um, one of the things I want to pick up on and ask you about Colin Johnson is, do you think that there's any validity in the, in the notion that marriage is a white middle class priority for the gay community? That the white middle class folks are the ones that are pushing it forward and that are, are the most visible around this and therefore it becomes the, what seems to be a single issue focus of the LGBT movement right now? Um, yes. Uh, and I, I would say, um, I mean, I think there are lots of different people who probably have designs on the privilege that they see marriage representing. I mean, I, I would be reluctant to say 
um, that uh, you know it, marriage equality is not um, a priority for a broad range of people because I think it is. I think it has become that in part because of the extent to which it's been embraced and put forward as a priority by people who are in a position to uh, enunciate those priorities on sort of everybody's behalf, right? That having been said, um, I think from a kind of critical perspective, one of the things we have to step back and ask ourselves is what is it that marriage represents, right? What kind of privilege does it represent? And traditionally, you get the long list of sort of specific um, rights and privileges that the the institution of marriage confers upon the people who are part of it, you know, who are sort of party to it. And um, the list of eleven hundred. The list plus. of eleven hundred. Yeah, the list of eleven hundred rights and privileges. Um, but I think you know part of what marriage represents, actually, both in sort of um, uh, America, uh, the American historical tradition, and also in the American legal tradition, is access to privacy um, and the sort of sanctity of privacy. Right, um, privacy that's not just solid the solitude of the home, but is a kind of privacy that's produced sort of between people. Um, and I think that. Um, there are all sorts of people who would like to have access to privacy. I think that people who are in positions of privilege have more experience um, sort of exercising the privilege of privacy that, um, that let's say, marriage represents or the ability to close the, your door behind you and not assume that it will be kicked down, <laughs> you know, represents. And so, um, so I do think that it's a, it's a priority that makes... Um, that makes more sense, and, and this goes to some of what um, Byron was talking about, to people who, for various reasons, because of various forms of structural privilege that they enjoy, um, can more easily imagine, you know, what it would be like to kind of inhabit that zone of privacy, or who feel automatically entitled to it in a way that other people who've been deprived of it don't necessarily. We need to take a break right now. You're listening to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My co-host Trish Curley and I are speaking with Byron Craig and Colin Johnson. If you're just joining us, we've been doing some context setting for our conversation about marriage equality by talking a bit about the history of the LGBT movement since the Stonewall Riots of 1969. More specifically, the ideals for the movement as defined by many LGBT people on the political left. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we'll pivot to concerns and questions some members of the LGBT community have, including tonight's guests, about marriage and its implications for themselves and the gay community. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange. Welcome back to our conversation about marriage equality for the gay community. We're speaking with Byron Craig, who teaches communications at the business school at IU and lives with his partner here in Bloomington. And Colin Johnson is the author of Just Queer Folks, Gender and Sexuality in Rural America, which was named a finalist for the 2014 Lambda Literary Award in LGBT Studies. He is co-editing, excuse me, he is co-editor of Queering the Countryside, New Directions in Rural Queer Studies, which is due out from New York University Press next summer. I want to start by uh, the second segment by playing a clip of an interview on the Charlie Rose Show with Andrew Sullivan, who's gay, but he's certainly not a progressive. Um, He is, in fact, a self-described conservative political blogger and commentator. And in this clip, he talks about talks about AIDS, and he talks about the baby boom in the gay community in the 80s and 90s. So let's listen to that clip. I think that the AIDS epidemic cannot be discounted from this issue. It was then that we saw spouses barred from the hospital rooms of their dying loved ones, cut out of their apartments. It revealed that we were vulnerable. Did and it also, give an urgency? It, 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 For me personally, and for a lot of us in this movement, we were doing this for our dead friends, to make sure they didn't die in vain, and to make sure no one would have to go through that again. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, many lesbians were beginning to have children and realized they had no protections over their own children, that they could be taken away from them by their own families, next of kin, legitimate next of kin, and they weren't recognized. So all that came together to create this momentum, and we knew that we'd have to lose We knew going into DOMA when I testified in 96 that we were going to get creamed. Mm -hmm. But my my view, and I think the view of all of us uh, in this movement, was that we will lose. But every time we lose, we will make an argument. And every time we make that argument, someone will hear it. And then every time they meet a gay person, they will say, do I want to deny my son, my daughter, my friend, my coworker, um, these rights? And that's what shifted. What shifted is from below. Eighty-one. The latest poll shows 81% of people under 30 support this. It may be a chicken and egg kind of question, but do you agree that AIDS and the gay baby boom in the 80s and 90s may have contributed to the shift towards conservatism in gay culture over the past 20 years? Byron, you want to take that one? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well... I think it could have contributed to it. I think there are a number of things that could contribute to that shift. Um, but again, I guess I had to go back to my earlier comment that maybe that was for a certain segment mm-hmm. of the population. And, and I, I think we made that kind of clear earlier that you know, it's the, 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 the community operates on a lot of different levels, from a lot of, a lot of different vantage points. Uh, so I don't I don't know if that necessarily was what every segment of the GLBT community was thinking about with AIDS, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because there was a segment that and, and you know a large segment that wasn't getting the medicines uh, that wasn't getting the treatment. Like I said earlier, neighborhoods that weren't able to even see community centers being built, like other places were getting community centers built. So I think again I would still have to keep my original point that I, I think in some instances I think Sullivan's right to a certain extent but I think even listening to his comments I think well he's leaving a part of that segment of that population out of that thinking 
Right. This is a question that that's that just pops in as you talk about this and as you talked before, the idea that we have trouble not talking just about those communities, too, in some mm-hmm. sense, that we're listening to Andrew Sullivan speak and we're listening to people who are, are gay activists as well. Mm-hmm. Are we hearing the voices that we need to hear beyond those that you know, we can say that Andrew Sullivan is a, is a conservative gay man and we can imagine that there are gay uh, rights uh, communities that are on the right side of the spectrum and, and on the left side of the spectrum. And that's where where we're going with this, I think, is to try to understand, is marriage one of those polarizing, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like an iron, you know, um, what am I looking, lightning rod items that sort of uh, show which direction your your politics are, in right. some sense. Well, because I, I don't think I ever heard of brothers like Exus um, Hemphill and, and, and Marlon Riggs really, you know, hanging on to this notion of, of, of gay marriage. I mean, I, I like what Colin said in the previous segment about this notion of privacy, and, that, and that, that's hitting home with me, and I keep thinking about it. it's resonating, right, this notion of privacy. And I think that's a wonderful way to look at this, the, the issue of gay marriage and being able to have that privacy to, you know, shut things out and to be able to build a life that you deserve. But at the same time, I think about, the, you know, the, the, the writings and the blogs and the, you know, the, the, the black gay chat rooms that I go to and I hear about those everyday concerns of just that everyday existence and living that aren't privileged to even think about this notion of marriage. Right? And so it's hard for me to kind of wrap my head around what Sullivan's saying. I, I think there's some validity, validity to it, certainly. But at the same time, I wonder, you know, there's still this exclusion in that conversation. And if I can just add on to that, I actually think there is a great deal of validity in the claim that Sullivan's making, but I don't necessarily think there's validity in it because Sullivan is making it. Um, I think there's validity in it actually because it's an argument that George Chauncey makes in a book called Why Marriage, um, which Sullivan clearly has ripped a page out of. I don't know when that clip came from, um, for the purpose of trying to organize a narrative um, that explains you know, precisely the kind of move that you're describing. Chauncey's characterization in that book, which I highly recommend speaking as somebody who does historical work to anybody who's interested um, in how gay marriage came to be um, a sort of central concern for the gay and lesbian rights movement. Um, uh, you know, Chauncey's analysis is quite rich in there in terms of explaining that. Um, I think Sullivan's is perhaps a bit disingenuous. But I would also point out that um, uh, and I would also point out that, you know, at the same time that's thinking about AIDS, for example, and the you know, uh, HIV AIDS, Sullivan's narration of that story is a story about kind of watching loved ones die around you, which was certainly a very r- real and continues to be a very real um, sort of aspect of contending with HIV AIDS. Um, but there's another part of that story, which was the refusal of a lot of queer activists actually to allow the issue of AIDS and HIV to be privatized and ignored by the state, right? <laughs> so a lot of the sort of radical activism um, that took place in the streets during the late 80s um, and early 90s was precisely um, an effort to make very, again, going back to this issue of privacy and publicness, to make very public the face of the HIV AIDS pandemic in a way that was about collective mourning and collective outrage. And for Sullivan um, to sort of say that HIV AIDS boiled down to we learned how to sort of, we, we, you know, we witnessed the importance of being able to have sort of intimate access to the people closest to us. 
at the ex- to the exclusion of a broader story about you know collective action um, taking place in the streets through organizations like ACT UP and other queer radical organizations is I think just one part of the story and an example of how the narrative gets turned into a narrative that points towards marriage as the sort of necessary outcome of all of this rather than um, other things like continued collective outrage over the marginalization of people along various lines, including race, class, gender, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. I want to uh, pivot a little bit and, and read a quote, another quote from Irva Shived. This time I'm going to read it instead of her. Uh, and she says, we have gone from a movement deeply concerned with the internal inequalities in our own communities that privilege some and prevent others from realizing full freedom to being a movement that is almost entirely represented publicly by people who argue that when we win marriage and military admission, that when we win ENDA, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, we will have won. Uh, Let's explore this question then. Uh, uh, Byron, let's start with you. What are the ways in which marriage gives you pause? What are your concerns about it? Well, I think that quote that does it beautifully for mm-hmm. me, uh, because because that can't be the end all. And again, clearly, you know, if it's legalized, that's wonderful. That that's a right one. But I think one of the problems, or one of the, I'm getting, one of the faults with the civil rights movement, I think, is that it stopped too soon. You know, it, it, and speaking from the perspective of the black community, it stopped too soon. You know, it's it's okay to get a law. I think. It's okay to make something, you know, now it's legal to get married, same-sex marriage. But I think the fight has to be really understanding this notion and the word freedom is what's so important to me, right? It, it, it becomes now this freedom politics. How do you gain that? Who's not free? What does it mean not to be free? When you're, you know, struggling to, uh, paycheck to paycheck, that's not freedom, right? When the corporation has this personhood and controls your body, that's not freedom. And I think that's the larger issue, which is why I'm all about coalition building, Mm -hmm. right? Not just, uh, you know, understanding you want to gain these rights, but taking it outside of that context, taking it outside the individual and making it about the broader, larger community, which is the world, not just the GLBT community, but the world and how you coalition build and think about not letting it stop there, right? Gaining that right, certainly, but understanding that can't be the end all, right? Getting admission into the military can't be the end game. It has to be larger than that, than that because it's, you know, when it boils down to it, what Dr. King was saying in the end, it's the economics, right? Which is why he was assassinated, right? You know, he started talking about money and no one wants to have their money taken away from them. And so I think there's that larger concern that we have to, really as a GLBT community, be prepared to expand that. Right. Colin, how about you? What are your views on marriage equality as the primary focus for the LGBT rights as a movement? Um, well, I think, you know, um, I, I, am cons- I guess I would say I'm concerned. I don't know if I'm concerned uh, about it being the primary focus as long as it is not the last focus of the LGBT movement. You know, I mean, and I, I think there's a difference between those two things. Um, my concern, my biggest concern, frankly, um, is that we will replace one variety of moralism with another, um, mm-hmm. which is to say um, marriage equality will be gained 
um, and uh, and what we will have is a world where um, coupledom per se replaces heterosexual coupledom as the sort of presumptive um, and self-evidently desirable norm uh, that all people are expected to ascribe to. And my concern with that is that, um, first of all, uh, it's, it's, it's differently exclusionary, but it is nonetheless exclusionary. <laughs> um, and my other concern, frankly, is that it doesn't actually describe the lives that most people lead, whether they're heterosexual, homosexual, or other sexual, right? I mean, which is to say um, relationships, intimacy, family, um, uh, the dependencies we have on other people and the sort of forms of reciprocity that we need from other people are very, very complicated things. Um, and marriage as an institution has actually often hidden a lot of that from public view. Um, certainly the history of women's experience with marriage attests to that. And my concern is that um, if marriage equality is pointed to as the final battle, as it were, for LGBT enfranchisement, um, that w you know we may end up in a situation where, because that was so hard fought for and so hard won, um, we 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 start to turn a blind eye to the problems that continue to persist, um, both within the institution, the newly expanded institution of marriage, but also for all the people who will still be outside of it, right? All the single people, all the cohabitators, all the people who have serious reservations about entering into marriage, however understood by the state contractually in a religious sense, whatever. Um, and that's sort of always been the concern about marriage, right? Um, that there are social questions that have to be asked that have for a very long time been answered with marriage as a solution. Um, and we're still not having those conversations, you know? Um, the, uh, and the, but the one example of this is until recently, until the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the question of why in the United States of America you had to be married in order to have access to health coverage in some instances, in many instances, um, was a sort of, was an incredibly important question, right? Um, and one that I think is still relevant um, to a lot of people who will be outside of that institution. Um, why those kinds of rights and privileges in here in an institution like marriage, as opposed to something like citizenship, let's say. Um, I mean, I think that those are sort of big questions that still need to be asked, regardless of the outcome of the struggle for marriage equality. Now, as your books focus on queer people in rural areas, uh, can you uh, bring some of those perspectives into this conversation? Well, my book is is um, historically focused in the you know it focuses primarily in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, um, and I suppose uh, if there's one aspect of the book itself that's germane to this conversation is it would be um, the part of the book where I talk about the sort of long and I think undervalued history of sort of strangeness, <laughs> and the, you know, and eccentricity. Um, as being a really important part of, if not LGBT life, although I think it's part of that too, queer life, the sort of legacy of queer life in the United States, right? Um, so one of the things that interests me as a scholar is the way that kind of social outliers um, uh, were not only, you know, sort of operated in the context of very small social worlds um, where it was precisely in many cases 
um, their strangeness, their idiosyncrasy, their refusal to abide by kind of norms of respectability that made them both visible it, within their communities and consequently to history. I mean, retrospectively, there's a lot of writing about them because they were sort of idiosyncratic, because they lived their lives differently, um, uh, made them visible, but also made them in many cases indispensable to the communities in which they lived, right? I mean, uh, they're, 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 these are the Boo Radleys of the world in some regard that I wrote about, the sort of um, the people who were queer not only as a sort of name for sexual difference or sexual alterity, but for sort of mar different kinds of marginality within these communities. Um, and my concern is that a lesbian and gay movement that imagines, um, that imagines success as acceptance by um, and sort of integration into, uh, you know, um, normative, the, the, the sort of n normative conventions of everyday life in the United States may further marginalize those people and may cause us to forget about the sort of central role that those people played in, in kind of queer history um, and the really important oppositional work they often did, you know, as being the people who refused to play along with the rules, who created enough space for people to be different in, in different ways. And that's what worries me. Uh, we got to take a break right now. We're speaking with, uh, well, we're speaking about the lure and limitations of marriage for LGBT people with Byron Craig and Colin Johnson. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about what appears to be the inevitability of marriage for gay people across the U.S. and what, if anything, should be the next focus of the LGBT rights movement. We'll be back with more of Interchange in a moment. Stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm, and my co-host, Trish Curley, and I are having a conversation with Byron Craig and Colin Johnson about the complex issue of marriage equality for same-sex couples. Colin Johnson teaches LGBT studies, gender, and sexuality at IU. Byron Craig teaches communications at the Kelly School of Business and has focused his research on the intersections of race, gender, and class. Before we get into the question of what should be up next for the LGBT community once marriage is secured for all who seek it, I want to explore the following question with you both. Um, let's, Byron, if you wouldn't mind addressing this, do you believe there is such a thing as, as gay culture, as queer culture? <laughs> if yes, what is it? 
Give us examples. Um, well, yeah, I think there is. I think I'm an example of queer culture. <laughs> I'm mighty queer. <laughs> well, you start off the segment with, you know, mighty real. I, you know, I, I grew up during the period, I grew up in my gay life, part of the period when Sylvester was just like really rocking it out in the clubs, right? And so, you know, looking at Sylvester, it helped me form an identity, and I performed, started performing drag in Atlanta, part of the way I paid for my college education. Um, Sylvester was so, a song we played at the top of the show. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, 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 you know, with thinking about studying Sylvester and going to see Sylvester perform, I was able to, to you know, and that started me going into the, the whole drag culture, going to the clubs. Uh, so I, I, that for me is one of the examples, you know, I, I think we can get even deeper with, you know, examples of, of what it means to be queer, what queer culture is, because it's, again, uh, it's, it's so big, you know, it's hard to, the, the shifting definitions of it. Um, but for me, I think I embody it, and I think I embody it because of my blackness and being a, a gay male uh, existing in a culture that sometimes is very hostile towards me. So I, I consider that part of that queerness and understanding that type of hostility, um, which I think is what really fashions or, or shapes my, not only my identity, but my, my thinking, uh, my philosophy, my politics um, of, of GLBT um, culture. And, and a queer culture. So all the, all that I think fashions it and the things that I've seen, the things I've lived through um, in my life, the people I've seen die and you know, all that I think identifies or I embrace it as that queerness. Um, yeah. Colin Johnson, you wanna take that question? Um, I, it, my, I guess my response is really prompted partly by Byron's response, which is I, I think there are a lot of a lot of gay cultures, um, and I think that, in uh, queer cultures, and I think they intersect in a lot of points, and they are very different in other points. Um, and I think that one of the one of the things that we may be seeing in the year 2014, after 45 years of you know struggle, um, is uh, one of the one of the dividends of that struggle is that there's actually enough space in the world um, because of the work that different people have done from very different positions and the kind of ways that they've pushed back for us to disagree internally in a kind of public way, right? Which is, which is to say um, for people uh, to, on the one hand, recognize commonalities and, and forms of solidarity that they c can and should share with other people regardless of their differences um, in experience, generation, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Um, but also the need of any movement broadly understood at a certain point to become kind of self-reflective. Um, and not that the gay and lesbian movement hasn't always been self-reflective, um, but to actually sort of uh, disagree productively internally, right? And to insist upon the relevance and the sort of salience of different people's experiences of things, including different people's experiences of marriage as... Um, as an object of desire, or access to marriage as an object of desire. Um, so, yes. Let, in terms of this notion of queer culture, yeah. gay culture, let, let's listen to a clip of Marty Duberman from a speech he made last year at the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies, mm -hmm. otherwise, otherwise known as CLAGS, at the City University of New York, which he founded and uh, directed originally. Let's listen to the clip. We have had a distinct 
collective historical experience, and therefore the way in which gay people view gender, sexuality, primary relationships, friendships, and family are different. Not different in the sense of being some second-rate variation on first-rate mainstream mores, which is how the mainstream often treats us, but rather it can be argued, and I know it's an argument, our differentness can be viewed as a decided advance over mainstream norms. Picking up on what Duberman is talking about, are we at risk of losing what's special and unique about queer culture and values as a result of so many gay people getting married? I don't think so, uh, because we're so generational. That, you know, that for me, while it's not the most important thing, um, but understanding that for some people that would be, uh, I, I don't, I think as long as we have these voices out there and, and because we have social media so much and people can just, you know, share these ideas and these arguments and, you know, their testimonies about where they come from um, and, and their own experiences. I, I don't think we're at risk in losing that. I just think we have to be very careful to understand that the culture is constantly shifting and we have to be able to work with those shifts and understand. And it, it, it kind of makes me, something I want to say when Colin was talking earlier, um, is that we, we just don't want to get post. <laughs> because when we get post, then it becomes dangerous. Tell us a little more about that, because well, that was up the air. Yeah, it, it's, just, it's just like the, the, the so, you know, we think about, um, you know, um, you know if, if, if gay marriage becomes the thing, right, that, that that's what catapults us into this, this sense of normalcy and we're, we're, we're like everyone else then. It's the same thing that happened, I would argue, with the civil rights movement and why we have this term post-civil rights now or post-racial is because we can dismiss all those other things that happened, right, all the fighting that these other people did to get these rights. And I think that is what is at risk and what we have to understand is a big part of, our, of, of the gay culture. Right, a big part of who we are, how we define ourselves, how we should always continue to define ourselves as these fighters, as people who've had to fight for some sense of equality or freedom or liberation. Uh, because you don't stop fighting when you're in a liberation struggle. I don't think that ever ends. It never will end. Uh, so I, I think we have to be really careful not to get to that notion of, of that post because when you do that, it dismisses any of the other needs that people have who haven't achieved certain types of rights um, or don't have that equal access to health care or to housing who are incarcerated um, at higher levels, percentages than other people. So it can't end. And I think if you keep a sense of that culture and that heritage and that, that history, um, and understanding that history. And, and I think it's, you know, part of my responsibility to continue that history and make sure people understand, hey, there was Stonewall, right? Uh, even before then, there were people who were fighting, you know, for their rights. I, I hate so much that I didn't get to meet this man who was supposed, who was on the cover of the Bloom Magazine issue where it had some of Bloomington's gay um, 
couples on the cover. There was an older man. He fell over the break, and he, he died before we did the, the actual photo shoot. Sorry. He, he was in the magazine talk to him. Was and it I this past year? This, this past year. Cover. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I wanted to hear... I wanted to hear his story about, you know, queer life in Bloomington, because that's important to understanding the gay culture, not only in Bloomington, but, you know, the larger aspect of the, the, the world that we live in. Right. You know, because we can't we can't forget that there are people in Africa who can't live out. And there are people in Jamaica who can't live out all around the world who can't live out. So. You, you can't stop that culture. Right? It, it needs to keep growing. You need to be able to redefine it and to be able to keep talking about it as the culture shifts, right? Even if we do get gay marriage legalized all through the country, right? You got to remember these other issues still exist. Well, you guys have been talking a lot about rights generally, right? So this is what I, I found most fascinating here as well. And, and the questions that we ask, you know, what is what is special about gay rights? What is special about gay culture? The, the Duberman clip in particular, what is the special quality that you're going to lose by normalizing or moving into what is a traditional conservative uh, institution, marriage in particular, and how marriage is a product of state organization as much as anything else? So what I hear here isn't so much... Um, you know, yay marriage because we can be institutional, institutional, institutionalized. institutionalized. <laughs> that's right. In some sense, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's something to think about in those terms. I think, and so, but the question then is, uh, I guess it's not a question. What I hear is the same, the same thing you hear in, in in feminist studies, in in civil rights as well. The fight for the uh, for equality. You know that that that's clearly what's happened in in the past and what continues to happen. And is it the marriage equality that becomes the the unfortunate trophy that you know lets 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 everybody off the hook? You know that's the sense that that I think that we've been talking about here, trying to play around that. Well, it is. I mean, I, I will just say this, which is, I think that I'm not worried about us you know losing gay and lesbian culture, queer culture in the United States because people. Um, uh, get married. Gay men and lesbians have been married for a very long time. They also often had to live double lives in the context of their, you know, uh, legally recognized marriages. So, um, uh, so yay if they can get married to each other. I think we run the risk of losing something quite distinctive about gay and lesbian life, queer life, um, if we get too respectable. And that's one of the things that actually concerns me most. And when you're talking about a group whose difference, alterity, and, and sort of um, uh, social marginalization um, has to do with sexuality, one, um, you know, looking respectable means looking desexualized. And I think that's sort of one of the um, hazards here, right? Which is, if everybody retreats into this institution of marriage, or if institution the institution of marriage becomes a harbor for respectable gays and lesbians who want to conduct themselves, you know, in the same privatized manner that respectable heterosexuals have been able to um, conduct themselves for generations. Bearing in mind that there are plenty of heterosexuals who are in no way respectable in their conduct. <laughs> you know, one, need, one need only, you know, fire up the Googles in order to confirm that. But nevertheless, um, but if respectability actually becomes a sort of object of desire, and that means giving up some of the less respectable aspects of, um, of gay and lesbian culture, queer culture, including the sexual cultures and sexual subcultures that were actually really important 
um, in terms of laying the foundation for the sort of social and community networks that then allowed for the politicization of people who then started making demands, then we really have lost something. And that's a hard... Um, that that's a hard line to sell, <laughs> you know, to sort of the American mainstream, despite the fact that heterosexuality is everywhere, um, you know, in in American society, at least implicitly. Um, it's on television. It's you know, it's on government forms. Um, my favorite example of this is his and hers towels that are <laughs> packaged and sold together. You know, I mean, like it's everywhere as a sort of. Um, uh, as a force in the world, despite the fact that heterosexuality is everywhere, um, it doesn't necessarily have to sort of concede its sexiness, as it were. It doesn't have to sort of acknowledge that. Um, and gay men and lesbians uh, and queers of various sorts um, have have drawn a lot of energy from refusing to sort of deny um, the importance of sexuality, not just as a personal, private, you know, expression of intimacy, but as um, as as a, a form of sociability that allows people to build connections and social networks and political consciousness and um, and communities, um, it's really easy to call that dirty promiscuity. But anybody who says that doesn't understand very much about gay and lesbian history um, because it was precisely that dirty promiscuity that allowed gay men and lesbians to respond as quickly and as successfully as they did to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Mm. So in the few minutes we have uh, remaining, assuming the fight isn't over, what do you think the LGBT movement should focus on once marriage, and assuming marriage will be one soon, what should be the focus of the LGBT movement? Do we still need an LGBT movement? I think you said we do, very clearly. Oh, no, yeah, I, I think we do. and I yeah. think it has to move towards, as with any movement, I think, it has to move towards a coalition building effort with other uh, disenfranchised, marginalized communities, and, and not even disenfranchised, marginalized communities, but any person who is willing to say there still needs to be this larger freedom movement, movement for freedom in the United States and around the world that looks at issues of, uh, of economic disparity, um, that looks at war, that looks at um, guns, uh, in the nation that looks at all these issues because I, I, you know, I, I don't want the, the my fear is being pigeonholed into all oh, those gay people. They just they won that their rights for marriage and that's what they were all about, right? Because that's not what we're all about. Again, we operate on so many different levels. We're so textured that we also are concerned about all these issues that are going on in the country also. And so I think that LGBT movement spreads out, becomes bigger. And there's that quote, uh, Audre Lorde, we don't lead single-issue lives. Mm -hmm. right. right. Colin Johnson, any closing thoughts? I just want a summer house. Um, uh, but <laughs> I actually, um, I would just echo what Byron said, which is I think, um, uh, you know, if, if gay men and lesbians um, do get a, a foothold, you know, and, um, uh, or, or do find something akin to sort of full enfranchisement by way of marriage equality, um, then they are uniquely positioned actually not to forget every other group, which is included within the gay and lesbian community, intersects with, but may be distinct from, 
um, every gr- other group of people who are still struggling um, to, you know, get get somewhere close to that, who don't enjoy the protections of the state, who don't enjoy this. I also think we're going to have to deal with the issue of, of singleness, I mean, on some mm-hmm. level. I, it sounds like a bit of a sort of um, uh, abstract concern at this point, but um, a lot of America is single, and a lot of America is going to be single because of demographic issues, and a lot of America wants to be single. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, very good. Thank you. Uh, sorry I have to cut you off there. We're Unfortunately, we're out of time for tonight. The story of marriage equality is dynamic and ever-changing, so don't be surprised if Interchange has more to say on the subject in the future. Until then, I want to thank Colin Johnson and Byron Craig for joining us. Thanks both to you. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richardson. The executive producer is Allison Bektesh. Original theme music is by Jamil Effiam. Join us next Tuesday for Logging in Yellowwood. Logging has picked up pace in Yellowwood State Forest, and residents whose properties border the forest say this is a more concerted devastation rather than a selective process. What's the best practice for the management of state forests as established by Indiana's Department of Natural Resources? And exactly what constituency does this practice serve? Logging in Yellowwood next Tuesday at 6 p.m. on Interchange. Until next time, I'm Doug Storm. And I'm Trish Curley. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie next up on WFHB. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Written and produced entirely by volunteers working in the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Interchange fosters unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in south-central Indiana and beyond. Comments, suggestions, and program ideas may be sent directly to the Interchange staff. The email address is news at wfhb.org. That address once again is news at wfhb.org.